to self. All right, so the topic this evening, which is not too dissimilar from that which we have done, uh, we did last week. Last week, we started talking about the question of free choice. Do we have free choice or is Judaism all based in uh, um, determinism, where everything is chosen, everything is predetermined? Tonight is slightly different because it's the idea of fate. And um, as much as we could say, well, isn't fate, you know, the idea of fate means that free choice is irrelevant. But I want to look at it much more from this idea that uh, there's a certain uh, predetermined outcome um, of our lives, um, not necessarily from birth, but at periods of time throughout, you know, our lives. There will be different times where we might say that um, Hashem has predetermined what is going to be, meaning that as opposed to last week, we said, do I have free choice in this particular thing? Does God know what's going to happen before I do it? Tonight, we're going to be talking about like, if my time is to come. So if, if Hashem is determined that I'm going to die when I'm X ages years old, then it's all predetermined and there's nothing I can do about it. So which is different from the free choice question. It's similar, but it's, it's slightly different. And so that's why I'm called it is, is a fate seal. And we're going to see a number of the time. I imagine most of the sources we talk about tonight, at least the original sources, will be sources you're familiar with. But um, we're going to try to see not so much on um, how, we are, uh, how these sources give us a clarity as to what the Jewish position is on particular points, but rather we can see is how they are answered by rabbis um, retroactively explains Jewish philosophy. So I'll, I'll give you an example. So here, and this, is the, this becomes one of the more controversial um, Rashi's philosophically in the entire Torah. <coughs> so this is in the beginning of Pasha Toldot, and it's talking about the birth of Yaakov and Asaph. So Yaakov and Asaph were identical, well, question whether they were identical or non-identical twins, but they were twins. And they were twins that were um, very different personalities-wise. Yaakov becomes an Ishtam Yoshevo Alim, like a, a Nebesh, a Nebesh, um, who, uh, who sits in the tents, he's a Yeshiva Bocha, and Asav is Ish Tzayd Ish Sadeh, he's a man who's out in the field and a warrior. So in utero, it says that, uh, uh, so we carry it here at the, the top of the sheet, so at age 40, Yitzchak took Rivka to be, to as his wife. And it says, And Yitzchak davened on to Hashem on behalf of his wife, because she was barren. And after a while, they were married for a while, eventually Hashem answered Yitzchak's prayer and she conceived. So the children, has it translated here? Um, struggled. So Rashi will explain what this means. The children struggled in her womb. So she says, if so, why, why is this to me or why do I exist? So she went to inquire of Hashem. So whatever the children were doing in her womb, warrant her to say, why on earth is this happening to me? God, why do I exist? And she sees that this is, uh, she goes to ask Hashem. So whether asking Hashem means literally asking Hashem or asking a prophet, whatever the case might be. But one way or another is that what was happening to her was very distressing. And she saw it uh, in, in uh, quite uh, theological terms. So says Rashi, 
Yedrotzitzu, what is this word? What was actually happening to? We, we have to bring a, a Midrashic understanding to this verse. So what, simply understood, what is this Ritzitza? So that, that warrant her to say, if so, why do I exist? So the rabbis say that it is from the language of Ritza. Ratz means to run. So the children were running around. So, so every time she walked past a yeshiva, what a yeshiva was in this time is not clear, but she'd walk past a yeshiva and Yaakov would like try to get out. He was like pushing his way out. And so when she'd go past out of worship in temples, Esav, let's say. So Esav was trying to get out. So these two boys were fighting with one another. Every time she went past the, let's call it modern day terms, every time she went past the yeshiva or a shul, Yaakov wanted to get out. And every time she went past the Beit Avodah a house, a temple of idolatry, then Asaph wanted to get out. So you read into that and you say, ah, okay, so Yaakov was destined for, to be a yeshiva bocha, and Asaph was destined to worship idols. So that's the Rashi. <coughs> so this Rashi creates this, this, this is exactly our question. So it seems from birth that, uh, that Yaakov was destined to be a tzaddik, a righteous individual, and Asa was dis- destined to be a, a pagan. So if that is the case, why on earth are we, uh, you know, we punishing Asaph? Asaph is going to be the bad guy throughout Jewish history. So that's, how, how, is, how is that fair? How can he be the bad guy? This was destined. It's like in the utero, the child definitely doesn't have free will. So here Asaph is predestined to be a pagan. How is it possible that, um, that he's going to be punished as a result of that? And, and Yaakov, the opposite. So I want to bring two answers to this question. So, the first is from the Drashotaran. This is, we are talking 10th, 11th century, uh, no, this is later, but 12th century. Um, <coughs> the run, if I'm not mistaken, was Spanish. Sounds about right. And he says as follows. In the physical features, Asaph was ruddy and hairy, attesting to his hot-blooded, passionate nature, whereas Yaakov was smooth-skinned, attesting to his good, even-tempered nature. And their character traits parallel their natures. For though character is not dictated by nature, it is undeniably predisposed by it. So that's the key. Character is not dictated by nature, but it is definitely predisposed by it. For this reason is written that Asaph knew hunting, his nature uh, nature inclining to stratagems and, and subtleties, the like being employed in the trapping of animals, he was a man of the field, seeking movement, his feet not planted in his home, and Jacob possessed the opposite of his two tendencies. He was a simple man, walking uprightly and glorying the dwelling of, of, at home. Their physical features and their character traits then show them to be diametrically opposite natures, the blessed one having created them thus, but not having compelled them to be good or evil. And this is the natural reason, in my view, for the two fetuses being antagonistic to each other while yet in the womb. For I do not believe that these two fetuses were invested with a prophetic effluence which foreshadowed their destiny. In any event, an explanation in terms of nature is called for. 
And that is that their antagonism stem from the Blessed One having created them diametrically opposed in nature, so that their natures contended with each other in the womb itself, though they were not predeterminedly good or evil. And because every natural force, when it encounters its opposite, either attempts to overpower it or flees before it, each one of these fetuses sought through its natural force to overpower the other or to escape it. This is the intent of Yitrotsetsu, that they wrestled. So, what is he saying? Is that Yaakov and Asaph were definitely naturally different. They had different tendencies. Yaakov was going to be a student. He was going to be very astute in studying and being, staying at home. Asaph was far more active and so, far more out there. Now, that is all they were invested with. Whether they were going to use those particular skills to be righteous, to be wicked, that wasn't there. What happened is they were, they had, so there's a, there's a Gemara in Shabbat, which comes and says that if you were born under a certain star sign, you will have particular character traits. So if it says you're born under the star sign of, Mer, of, of Mars, you will be a blood spiller. But you could be a Shochet or a Mohel, or you could be a murderer. Either way, you are going to be spilling blood. It's just a question of how you're going to be spilling blood. That determines. So what's happening here in the womb is you have these two opposites. You have one who is a very external physical being and one is much more introverted and much more intellectual being. And those two kinds of personalities are going to be rotatu. They're going to fight one another. They cannot get along. They are just too different. But it doesn't mean that one's going to be wicked and one's going to be ev- uh, one's going to be righteous. You can have those traits and be righteous or be wicked. So I'll give you some examples. So Asav is called, his character trait is called an Admoni, which means ruddy, which apparently means redhead, but uh, he was a fiery temper. So there was another great Jew that had a fiery temper and was also a redhead, and that was King David. So if King David was a redhead, I mean, there is no leader in the Jewish community, dare I say, that has ever come close to King David. Even Moshe Rabbeinu, we never say Moshe Rabbeinu Chayva Kayam, David Melech Yisrael, he's, he's the leadership. The Mashiach is not the descendant of Moshe, he's the descendant of David. And David had the identical personality to Asaph. The difference is one used it for good and one used it for wicked. In the world of um, intelligence, so you have the, the studious uh, student who, who sits and studies all day, and he can be a Yaakov, but how many intellectuals have used their intelligence for negative reasons? You know, for, for negative purposes. So these ideas are that, and that's what the run is trying to explain this Rashi, that this idea of Yitrotsutsu need not mean that, they, that it was predetermined, but only that their character is predetermined, or let's say their tendencies were predetermined, but how they were going to use those tendencies was not. Now, just to, um, <coughs> to appreciate that, I just want to bring another opinion, and this is... This is an opinion that we quoted not last week, but two weeks ago. Um, yeah, we didn't quote it last week. Rav Eliyahu Desla. And he gives a, a different answer. So I'm not going to go through the whole Hebrew here, but let me explain it outside. He says that what has, when this experience of walking past a, a, a yeshiva and Yaakov wanting to get out and walking past an, an idol, a pagan place and Asa wanting to get out, was Hashem um, showing people what the future could bring. 
that Asav says that if you make bad decisions, this is where you, where you will end up. And Yaakov, if you make positive decisions, this is where you will end up. But not to the exclusion of the other. Meaning, if Yaakov makes bad decisions, you'll also end up in the idol, you know, the idol worship. And if Asav makes good decisions, you'll also end up in the yeshiva. But what happens is that, and, and this is the way he explains, is that Hashem gives us what's called Rimazim. So if you see at the top of the line here, it says, uh, mer, uh, it says, Meramzim Minashamayim, getting hints from heaven. And it, it, was, it was a very powerful idea that he says over here, which is that we often seek validation from Shamayim for our actions. So people would do something and they'll say, ah, you see, Hashem wants this to happen for me because they read events in the world to be Hashem either promoting and encouraging their behavior or or the opposite, discouraging the behavior. So what he says of you is that depends on the, the integrity of the individual. So if you're a person who's completely, your values are corrupted, you will misinterpret the divine hints. And if you are a person who's incredibly uh, honest and you have great integrity, so then you will be able to see the divine hints. And so the problem comes is that you have someone like Asav who instead of interpreting the, 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 the rushing to the, the, the pagan worship as a what could happen, he misinterpreted it as being that what, that's what needs to happen. Yeah. And, the, and Yaakov was the opposite. Yaakov, you know, through Rav Des would say that he honestly saw what his future would be. So it, it's, it's an idea that deserves a bit more time in and of itself. But what was key for me to quote in, the, in these two sources is what both of them refused to accept is that Asaph was destined for evil. It could not be that I said, ah, that seems to be exactly what the Medrash says. The Medrash that Rashi brings seems to say explicitly that Asaf in utero was already destined to worship um, paganism. Says Both of them says cannot be. It is not possible. And, and they can you know, find a whole bunch of different Jewish sources that come and say that that idea is completely foreign to uh, Jewish theology. Okay, so that was a little bit of an introduction. And um, I imagine many of you are familiar with this particular um, source, but um, possibly not. But the, the next one, the, uh, I'd be very surprised if there's anyone here who has not read this, heard this, and questioned it. And this is a Gomorrah in Rosh Hashanah. It says, Amar Rabbi Kuspadai. Amar Rabbi Yochanan. So Rabbi Kuspadai said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan. There are three books opened on Rosh Hashanah. One is for the completely wicked individuals. And the other is for completely righteous individuals. And the third book is for the so-so people. So if you are righteous, they get inscribed and sealed immediately in the book of life. Rishaim Gmurim, wicked individuals, completely wicked individuals. So they get inscribed and sealed in the book of death forever, immediately. So what about the Bainunim, the 50-50s? So they sort of stand in abeyance between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So if between that period of time they merit then they get written in the book of life. And if they don't, they get written in the book 
of death. <coughs> okay, so I'm going to go on a limb here and say that everybody's heard this, this, this Gomorrah before. It is very, very familiar. And it's because we're seeing Rosh Hashanah, Yikatevu, Yom Tzum Kippur, Yikatevu, Mi Yichyev, Mi Yamut, who will live and who will die, who in this way, who will have Panasa, who will not have Panasa, who will be healthy, who will be sick. It's all talked about Rosh Hashanah, Yikatevu. So, according to this, if you are completely righteous, you'll be inscribed in the book of life, nothing to worry about. And if you're completely wicked, you're not going to live. So according to this, if you are a wicked person, you only have the ability to be wicked for 12 months. Yeah, so because Rosh Hashanah last year, so let's say Rosh Hashanah, I was righteous last year, so thank God I got another year. And from day one, for the next 300, well, 356 days, that's the amount of days in a lunar year. So this 356 days, I'm going to be a wicked individual. And then Rosh Hashanah, I'm going to be inscribed for the book of death. Like you could, you would never go longer than that. And so long as you are righteous, so then you're safe. You're never going to die because righteous people always get sealed in the book of life. So you read something like that, and you say, like, um, not true. Not true. There are many righteous people that are going to die this year, and there are many wicked people who are going to survive. So you read a Gemara like that, and you say, it sounds very good. It sounds very fantastic, but it's not true. So you don't have to go far. Tosfot, one of the earlier commentaries on the Gemara, really starts asking this question from the outset. I'm not going to bring the Tosfot. But like everything else... <coughs> They are going to, they, they, they refuse to understand it, that it is what it says. So even though we're going to say, we're going to sing this in a ton of tokef, both on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and it's going to um, elicit from us a lot of emotion because it is a very powerful prayer. It's not really true. Because if it was really true, so then every bad person's going to die this year. And Baruch Hashem, you would never have evil in the world and everyone who sticks around, we know is a righteous person. So, how do you understand this idea? So, um, I'm going to quote uh, a couple of opinions here. Um, I'm only going to one in writing, and this is the Marisha. And you'll uh, excuse me, I'm uh, not going to read through it all, but uh, you can trust me that this is the, the gist of what he says. When it comes to um, life, there are people in this world. All of us are good and bad. There's no such thing as a person who's all good and no bad, and no such thing as a person who's all bad and no good. So how does Hashem operate the world? So He operates the world <coughs> that a person should, ultimately, the world to come is where um, the greatest reward is available for the individual. And this world's pleasures are considered insignificant compared to the pleasures in the world to come. On the flip side, the, the punishment that one would suffer in the world to come are so much more severe and painful than anything in this world. Now, we are not suggesting that the both reward and punishment in the world to come are anything physical, and everything in this world is either physical or emotional. But that idea that um, everything that happens in this world is uh, not even a microcosm, is, a, is, a, uh, is just a taste of what happens in the next world. So if you've got a good person who's gone, you say he's, got a, 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 he's 99% righteous and he's 1% wicked. So you know what you need to do? That 1%, Hashem will exact justice for that 1% of wickedness in this world. So that when he passes on and goes into the next world, he's 100% clean. 
He's, he's, he's paid his debt to society, so to speak. And when he gets into the next world, it's just Olam Abba. It's just Gan Eden. He's, he's done all his penance in this world as a result of the suffering that he's been in. Oh, on the flip side, we have uh, the wicked individual who's 99% wicked and 1% good. So the guy's done 1% good. He deserves to get uh, compensated with the 1% good. So what does Hashem do? So Hashem gives him it in this world. Let him benefit. Let him have, uh, you know, panasa and health and family and nachas and whatnot. But when he leaves this world, that's it. He's gone. He's used up all his credit. And now he's just gets, uh, he just gets negativity. He gets Gehenim in the Olamaba. Okay, so that's how Hashem operates. Now, we, that judgment has to happen. So when does that judgment happen? So that judgment happens on, on uh, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. That's what's going to be happening over here. That the individual is going to be judged in the moment at a, at a point in time. He, he might be a righteous person, but he's been judged for the wickedness in him. Meaning that the Rishayim, so when it says the righteous people, they get uh, life and the wicked people, they get death. What is it referring to there? So the wicked people are actually the righteous people that are being judged for that wickedness and they will die in this year. And the wicked people are what we call in this Gomorrah, the righteous people and they will get their reward and they will lie. And the Bainunim is everybody else, everybody else. It answers a number of questions. It's, uh, it's very difficult to understand uh, the, the divine mathematics to come to this conclusion. But that being said, is uh, like we've seen previously, the Shah refuses to accept the fact that uh, the Gemara is to be understood as it is. I'd like to suggest another answer. And this is an answer that um, I believe is the Rambam. And when I say I, I believe it's the Rambam, it means it's not said explicitly in the Rambam. But I've done a little bit like A equals B and B equals C, therefore A equals C. So um, I'd like to suggest uh, the following in the name of the Rambam. So when we talk about life and death in, in the Torah, it can mean one of two things. It can mean the literal idea of life and death, but it can also mean something more qualitative rather than quantitative. So for example, in last week's parasha, as well as we will read uh, towards um, the end of Devarim, uh, consistently talks about this style, you should choose life. And the Torah comes, you should choose life. So whatever, the, whatever the Torah is asking us to choose, it's clear it doesn't mean life as we know it. Like we, it's, it's not saying, please uh, choose to live, don't choose to die. It's talking about something more qualitative. And so what is that qualitative? So the Gemara comes and says that the righteous people, righteous in the world, are, even when they have passed on, are still considered alive. And the wicked, even if they are very much, their hearts are beating, they are considered dead. So th- that is very clear. In fact, if you go, um, the cemeteries, you know, so th- there are lots of different names for uh, a cemetery in Hebrew. But one is a Beit Chaim. It's a, it's a home of the living. So it's like, what do you mean it's the home of the living? It's, everyone's dead there. That's the definition of a cemetery. It says, yes, physically, but righteous people don't die. They keep living. So that's where this idea. So the, what the Rambam comes and says, and he, that part I've just said is just a, that's a universal truth within Judaism. This idea of uh, life being either qualitative or quantitative. And, and I think we would say the same in English as well. It's not unique to Hebrew. 
So the Rambam in the second paragraph of the Shema, where it says, If you listen to my commands and you do that which I say, I'll give you rain in the times and you'll get panasa. But if you don't, if you don't, you will be banished from the land and there won't be rain and everything will be terrible. So the Rambam says, we have a principle that there's no such thing as reward and punishment for mitzvot. And if there's no reward and punishment for mitzvot, so this cannot be referring to being rewarded for mitzvot that we've done or punishment for sins that we've done. So what does it mean that if you listen to uh, the mitzvah, if you listen to Hashem and do the mitzvahs, I'll bring rain, and if you don't, I'll bring drought? So the Rambam says that when you daven, sorry, when you are keeping the mitzvahs of Hashem as a community, not as an individual, this is all in the plural, so as a community, Hashem <coughs> will manufacture the world in such a way that will make Torah observance far more conducive. So for example, we are just be, we are going through a time where mitzvah observance has been incredibly difficult. So no one's been able to daven in a minyan. So so what Hashem, so to speak, is preventing us from keeping mitzvot. So the plague, you can say the plague is a punishment from God, but what the way the Rambam would say it is that what you can't be punished from God. Punishments in the world to come, but Hashem will make things happen in the world that will pre- prevent you from doing mitzvot. That's what the Shema is talking about. And when you're keeping uh, the will of Hashem, what will happen? So then there'll be great opportunities. So you, it's, it's fantastic. You can build a sukkah and you can, uh, if, there, if it's peacetime and there's good weather. So if you punish, that's why rain on Sukkot is considered such a, such a curse. Because Hashem, you know, on the one hand, there's this great mitzvah to do, but Hashem prevents us from doing the mitzvahs. So says the Rambam that that's what it means, is that when you're keeping the will of Hashem, so the world will become a much friendlier place to do mitzvot, giving you more opportunities to do more mitzvot. And when you re- rebel against Hashem, so then Hashem is going to deny you those opportunities. And so you won't be able to, you won't have money to do tzedakah. You won't be able to afford to do mitzvot. You won't have the time to do mitzvot. You will be uh, in the like. So bring that back now to this particular Gemara. Those who are, in, who are righteous get inscribed immediately for life. So what does that mean? It means those who are a tzaddik, they will be given life. What does life mean? Not they will be given another 365 years, but rather they will be uh, inundated with opportunities to live a far more qualitatively uh, good life. And if they are wicked, what will happen is Hashem will inscribe them for death. What does death mean? That Hashem will deny them all those opportunities. That they won't be able, either they won't have money to give tzedakah or they'll have money but they will never find the opportunity to give tzedakah because they just won't ever be presented with the opportunity. So, so that's, that's the way the Rambam understands it. He says this is all allegorical. This is not literal at all. People do not get signed, you know, inscribed for death or inscribed for life. That there's this idea that there is no uh, predestiny that this is what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. And we definitely cannot say that this is what's going to happen. All we can say is that when the Gomorrah comes and suggests that it is pre- predestined from Rosh Hashanah, who will live and who will die, what it means is not that. It means whatever it is going to mean, but that it does not mean. So we've already seen now, <coughs> we've seen two Talmudic sources 
Uh, uh, yeah, well, we've seen two. Uh, we see the Rashi, which talks about Asav and Asav being predestined to, to be wicked. And we've seen the Gemara about Rosh Hashanah, about the idea that um, you... Um, that you that uh, you will be inscribed for death of a life, and everyone wants to say that's not what it means. Now, that means very limited context, uh, or it means in a in a in a very allegorical context. But it does not. Both agree that it is not literal. So the final po- the final uh, one I want to bring is uh, a Gemara in Beitzah, which is very similar to the last one, but has a slightly different um, uh, tinge to it, and that is. Uh, Gemara Baita comes as Tani Rebi Tachlifa Achva de Rabbanai Chuza. So he said, So you should not, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, your panasa for the upcoming year has been determined. Except for what you spend on Shabbos and Yom Tov, or and for educating your children. So, for ex- so if you spend a lot on Shabbos, you want to an education, don't worry, Hashem will make it up to you. And then if you, uh, if you underspend in those, then Hashem will detract it from you. So if, you, if Hashem determines you're going to make $100,000 this year, and you decide that you're going to spend $90,000 in the first month of the year, so then you're not going to get more than that $10,000. That's it. It is done for the year. So hold on a second. Yeah. So if that's the case, so why do I need to work? If everything's been predetermined, so I can, uh, I can uh, sit back and relax that and not go to work today because whether I go to work today or I don't go to work today, I'm going to get my panasa. And if, uh, if, if Hashem is determined that I'm going to have a bad financial year, so it doesn't matter how hard I work, it's going to be bad. And if Hashem determines I'm going to have a good financial year, then it doesn't matter how hard I work, I'm not going to get any better. So how do we understand this? So to the best of my knowledge, only the, the, the um, fundamentalists within Judaism understand this literally to the extent that um, they will, will not work. And you can understand that within certain sects of the Jewish community that they can sit back and say, listen, I'm, uh, everything's in the hands of heaven, so I'm not going to uh, do anything and Hashem will provide. There was a, a movie a number of years ago called Ushpizim uh, with Shuli Rand. Um, where he uh, is a chassid and he davens that Hashem should bring him panasa and someone makes a donation to So there's something very um, tamim, there's something very um, beautifully naive if you can live like that. But I recall a story once, and this is a story that may be more, uh, um, more of a, a myth legend than actually true. But the story went that a particular guy went to, uh, I think it was Rav Salant, Rav Yosef Salant, if I'm not mistaken, who was the Rav of Yerushalayim. And they said to him, so is, if, if the, is this Gemara true? So if I don't work and I just have faith in Hashem, He will provide me with my panasa regardless. And the Rav said, yes. So he said, so, so I'm going to just go buy a lotto ticket. And you're telling me if I have enough imunah and bitachon, enough trust and faith in Hashem that He will allow me to win the lotto. So he said, yes. So God so runs out and buys a lotto ticket. And he comes back to the Rebbe. He said, all right, I bought the lotto ticket and I'm going to believe that Hashem is going to allow me to win the lotto. So the Rebbe said to him, so how much is the lotto, you know, for this? So let's just say, he said, it's $10 million. So the Rebbe said, you know what? Give me the ticket. I'll give you $9 million cash here. I'll go, yeah, who knows? So he said, if I give you $9 million now, can I buy that ticket from you? And the guy said, absolutely. 
He says, then you're not a mamin. He says, if you've got a $10 million ticket, why would you sell it a day or two early for a million dollar cheaper? If you, if you believe that it's going to win, then you, even if someone would give you a dollar less, you wouldn't take it. You know it's going to win. So that's the kind of faith you have to have to live such a lifestyle. Um, not many people like that. In fact, last week, last Monday was uh, uh, the Yotzar of Shimon Bar Yochai on Lagba Omer. And Shimon Bar Yochai was such an individual where he said that uh, <coughs> if I, I will sit and study Torah and those who sit and study Torah, their malacha, all their work will be done by others. So a lot of people in Israel apparently believe that that's the case, so that they don't go to work. But um, it's also, uh, it should be noted that these communities are the most poverty-stricken in Israel. So that I do that. So, so over here we're going to quote, uh, uh, this is a, a book, this one that we have over here, written by a rabbi called the um, Rabbeinu Bachia. Rabbeinu Bachia was actually interesting a number of years ago. And whenever I go to Israel tomorrow night, I try to take a couple of days off and just go wandering around. And we were driving up north, somewhere between the northern tip of the Kinneret, as you sort of drive north towards Rosh Pina, and then sort of head up into the Golan. And we came, every now and again, you see this, uh, um, sorry. you see this um, little uh, hut with a blue uh, dome. That invariably means that it's somebody's grave. So we just stopped on the side of the road and went to it, and it was Rabbeinu Bachias. It was this uh, Rabbeinu Bachias. So he wrote one of the most notable books in Jewish philosophy called the Chovot Levavot, the Duties of the Heart. And he asked the question, so if Hashem's going to provide us all upon us, so why do we need to work? So he says as follows. He gives the first answer. He says, God wants to test us. To see whether we'll follow the Torah or not in seeking our panasa. Will we steal or will we have faith that God will provide for us without theft? Meaning that the concept of work is to create an ethic of morality, not in order to uh, make a living. So the reason I work is because I want to be ethical and I want to earn my panasa in an honest, legitimate way, not through theft. And that is the reason for work. So will I work six, seven days a week or six days? Am I going to be able to... Um, do uh, learning in such a way, so working in such a way that it uh, will be conducive to a Jewish lifestyle. He says, of course I'll make the same amount of money either way because working more does not lead to earning more money. So over here, unlike what we've seen previously, is a concept of predeterminism. So whereas it seems that predeterminism does exist sometimes and sometimes it doesn't. So he gives a second reason why we have to work. And he says the second reason God wants us to work to earn a living. So God knows that most people are unable to occupy themselves all day with Torah mitzvahs. Meaning that for practical purposes, people need to get a job. Why? Because they've got to keep themselves busy. So you don't, you don't get a job because there's value. You're not getting a job to make money. You're getting a job to keep yourself busy. I tell you, keep yourself busy in your shiva. You can't keep yourself busy in your shiva, so go get a job. Okay. So... The Chovod Levavot is, pre, pre, is, is uh, giving you two different answers as to why we work if it's all predetermined. But unlike what you've seen previously, he's saying everything is predetermined. So where do we draw the line? Are things predetermined or they're not predetermined? 
So is there fate? Am I going to be rich this year? Apparently, according to the Chovod Levavot and according to the Gemara, Hashem decided Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur whether I was going to become a multimillionaire this year or not. And if I said that I am, then it doesn't matter how little I work, somehow it will come to me. So I, I sit on my tuchus and do nothing. And apparently, uh, I'm going to find out that I had some great rich uncle somewhere in the world that I never knew about and he died and left me his entire estate. And if it's the opposite, I've been determined that uh, I'm uh, not going to make it. So I just, I will not be able to make a living. So how do we uh, juxtapose this? Uh, so how do we uh, uh, reconcile? So there are two ways of saying it. One way we can look at it is say, it's like, listen, there are different opinions in Judaism. Sometimes we say, yes, there's, uh, there's definitely elements of fate. And others say that, no, there are no elements of fate. There are different opinions. But I think one has to d- distinguish, and we, I think we did see this last week, not so much in one of the sources, uh, not in one of the original sources, but one of the rabbinic commentaries, that when it comes to certain elements in life, there's no question that there's a certain element of predeterminism. So g- just even genetically speaking, we saw this a little bit in the, um, in the uh, who did we see earlier? I can't remember who the, Joshua Taran. He said that you know if a person is built with a great physique and a physical ability, so he that's predetermined that he's going to be a faster runner than somebody who is not given those. Someone who's got who's born uh, with natural skill um, as, is going to have very different outcome to someone who's not born with those skills. So there is definitely some element of predeterminism. So the way the Gemara brings it out, I mean, this is the Gemara when Hashem brings. The, this, the drop of uh, the, the, the embryo in front of Hashem and says, this individual, will he be smart or will he be simple? Will he be wealthy? Will he be poor? Um, all of those he says, but it doesn't say whether he will be righteous or he will be wicked. That is the free choice of the individual. So is there fate? Definitely there's an element of fate within Judaism. There are things that will happen to us beyond our control that have been predetermined. And our response of using free choice is how are we going to respond to that? Turning fate into destiny. That is our own response. But it's not so much that everything is predetermined, that I can act willy-nilly, that if Hashem decides I'm going to die this year, I remember people, I used to have a relative of mine used to smoke like a chimney, and I said to him, like, you know, why do you smoke? They said, if God wants me to die, he'll die. It really doesn't work that way. You can't say that I will flirt with death, and if Hashem doesn't want me to die, I won't die. One has a certain responsibility to take care of yourself. It's a mitzvah. You take care of your bodies. You've got to be careful. You know, Take care of yourself. So if it was predetermined, why do you have to take care of yourself? You can go be as reckless as you want. If Hashem doesn't want you to die, you won't die. We do not believe that. And same in the others. This idea that you know, when your time is up, not so clear that we believe that. That some people, okay, when things are completely beyond our control, so their time had come. But behaving in a reckless manner is going to cause. So we, uh, we read on Pesach that the, the night of Pesach, no one was allowed to go out their house. Why were they not allowed to go out their house? Because the Sarah Mashchit, that the, the angel of death was coming through. So you can't say, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to go outside my house and it won't affect me. He says, no, it doesn't work that way. If you go outside your house when it's a dangerous time to go out, you will die. So, you know, we're in time of COVID at the moment, so you've got to take care of yourself. You've got to say, oh, but if Hashem doesn't want me to die, I won't die. Maybe don't think like that. We don't think like that. So I didn't quote. There was one last source that was a bit lengthy, so I left it out. It was by an early <coughs> commentary called the Rashash. And he um, actually was in with, with, oh, here it is. Rashbash, not the Rash. The, so uh, 
if you want, I can send this to you. I don't want to go into it. But his question asked at the top here. Will fleeing from one place to another during a time of epidemic help a person not? If he's inscribed in Rosh Hashanah for death, how will fleeing help? If he's inscribed for life, even staying put will not harm him. So that's our question. You know, if he comes and he goes, if, it's going, if he's destined to die, he'll die. If he's not destined to die, he'll live. So how does it work? So in an essence, he says, listen, one has to distinguish between something that will happen and something that might happen. There's a life of possibility and there's a life of uh, definiteness. And um, most of our lives are lived in the world of possibility, that there's always chance and, uh, and risk. And uh, we are responsible for those decisions we make and we can't blame God. It's like the old story uh, of the guy that the floods are coming and uh, the SES comes and says, you've got to get out of your house. And he says, no, 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 I believe in Hashem, nothing will happen to me. And then the next time the, he gets on top of his building and the, the boats come past and they say, jump in the boat. He says, no, Hashem will save me. And then the helicopters come and says, no, Hashem will save me. And then the guy drowns. He gets up to Shemaim and says, Hashem, I was such a from God, did everything I needed to. Why didn't you save me? And so Hashem says, I sent you a boat, I sent you the SES, I sent you the helicopter. You know, you've know, got to help yourself. One cannot heap on Hashem um, responsibilities when we act in a reckless manner. So in essence, to conclude this evening's presentation, is that there's definitely this idea of some level of determinism within Judaism, but it's not so clear-cut that the responsibility on our shoulders at least has to be, in some respects, that there is nothing is pre- being predetermined. We have to live as if it has not. But that being said, as we saw right now in Rabbeinu Bachaye, there's this element of still having faith that Hashem is controlling the world. So even though I go to work every day, why? Because I've got to earn a living. In the back of my mind, I know Hashem will ultimately determine whether I have a panasa or not. But I have to work as if, it's almost like you work as if there's no God and you believe as if the work, no, work does nothing. So it's having those two elements. Um, but it is a much more expansive conversation. But I think at least uh, this evening we've, we've entered into it from a, from a first way of understanding it. And hopefully, uh, hopefully that was a clear presentation. Thank you very much, anyone.